Turning your Bibles to James 4, I'll be reading the first 12 verses. James 4, beginning at verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts, that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother, and judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law, and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? And you may sit down. Conflict. The cause and cure. Clearly the text here is a continuation of chapter 3, the content that we looked at in our last lesson. We notice that at the end of chapter 3, two times the word peace is used, and that's especially used to describe the um, wisdom that comes from above. And when we ascribe to that wisdom that comes from above, uh, it leads us to, to peace. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of those that make peace. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your own lusts, that war in your members? Two times at the end of chapter 3, we have the word peace, and two times in the first verse of chapter 4, we have the word war. The contrast of godly wisdom and earthly wisdom, or wisdom that comes from within, selfish wisdom. This wisdom, chapter 3 tells us, is earthly, it is sensual, it is connected to what motivates our five senses, and it is devilish. Those words are uh, strong and harsh words, but James digs in here, he turns the screws a little tighter, as it were, in this text before us here today. It's sort of a crescendo of some of the themes that he has been talking about in previous chapters in the book of James. Clearly, it seems as if 
the Christians here that he's writing to were in the middle of conflict. And um, why should we be surprised? <clears throat> the relational conflict that is so familiar to pretty much all of us represents the struggle that is life and the struggle that comes from living life in the kingdom of God. It represents going against the flow, walking the narrow way, as Jesus talks about in, in uh, Matthew 5. And when we're in conflict, it reveals sometimes how deep that struggle is in walking uh, or experiencing conflict and walking differently. There's an old anonymous rhyme which says, To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's a different story. <coughs> do you have conflict in your life? Of course you do. We all do. Life, in many ways, is actually a series of conflicts. And it's how we do in those conflicts that determines the consequences and the outcome, perhaps even ultimately determines our destiny. Now, it seems... It seems to me, well, it just needs to be stated up front, I think, that there are conflicts that arise from standing for biblical truth. Um, truth that is at odds with our culture, and I'm talking especially secular culture. Things such as the sanctity of life, or issues related to marriage and gender, and the list could probably go on. But I don't really believe that in James chapter 4 it is talking about these kinds of conflicts. James is not talking about conflicts that arise between Christians and non-Christians, the secular world. He's not talking about conflicts that arise in our lives because we are the ones that are standing for biblical truth and others are not. In chapter 4, James addresses relational conflict. And relational conflict that is represented and present within the church. It's sort of sad to me as I studied this and I realized that I believe that James is talking to Christians. Consider your own life. How many conflicts in your life, present or past, how many conflicts in your life are because you were the one that was standing for biblical truth? How many conflicts arise in your life because you were trying to get what you wanted? 
How many conflicts are in your life because you didn't get your way and your advice was not followed and you didn't get what you wanted? How many conflicts in your life come from selfish desires? And these are the kinds of conflicts, at least as I read the passage, as I understand the text, these are the kinds of conflicts that James is addressing. The cause. In verse 1, he makes it rather clear. They come from selfish desires. The word lusts is used here at least twice, maybe three times. And that is another word, or some translations use the word passions or desires. The Greek word that he uses is the word that we translate in English, hedonism. And hedonism is basically the philosophy that considers self-gratification and pleasure to be the primary goal of one's life. Or, to say it a different way, the need to avoid pain at any or all cost. The source of conflict is selfish desires, he says. They come from your own lusts that war in your members. It's pretty hard to misunderstand that. The, the source of conflict comes from among you. Another way of saying is that it comes from within. When I am involved in a conflict, the problem is me. The problem is what's going on inside of me. In your members, he says. Eleven times in the first five verses he uses the word ye. It's pretty hard to misunderstand. James has taken on a little bit of a different tone here in prior and previous texts and, and uh, times we noted how that he used the word we. But he turns now and he gets a little more pointed by saying ye eleven times in these first five verses. Our default response when we're in conflict is the other guy, the other person. They're the problem. If they would change their ways, everything would be just fine. If they would change their views, everything would be just fine. If they would do what I suggest, if they would hear what I have to say, we could get along fine. And too many times we look at conflict as being horizontal. It's just that person. It's just that situation. Such and such was said about me. And so on and on we go. But James points us to another cause by asking two rhetorical questions here in verse 1. He says, don't they come from the passions that war within you? It's in us, you see. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. That's hard for us to hear, I know. It's hard for me when I'm in conflict to think of it in those terms. And even now, probably some of you in your minds are questioning that. And as I prepared this sermon, my mind questioned that too. We start thinking about and searching for examples to prove that the statement that 
James makes in verse 1 is made out to be wrong. We start looking for exceptions to the rule. I can't be wrong in this situation. It must be the way I'm seeing it. That person did me wrong. And on and on we go. <clears throat> Hedonism. Like I said, some translations use the word passions or desires. Those are all correct. But hedonism is the perspective that says, I live my life to please myself. And relational conflict is in direct opposition to that theory. Relational conflict happens when we try to sit on the throne of our lives. When we take control for our lives, our relationships, our thoughts, and we put ourselves on the throne of our lives. So when something comes up against us, when we are confronted, or we find ourselves in conflict, it directly challenges the fact that I am not in control of my life. Most of us would never be so cold and callous as to say that. But how often do we live just like that? Here's the truth. There's only one who is worthy to sit on the throne of our lives. And that person is not me. It is not us. That's worthy to sit on the throne of our lives. Think of it like this. What would happen if you told your spouse or your family or your friends or your neighbors and you would just publicly say to them, I am always going to put my needs first. I am never going to put your needs first. Most of us would never be so cold and callous. But unfortunately, too often we live our lives just like that. Self is on the throne in our lives. Selfish desires takes over. And we, our actions say that I am not putting your needs before my own. <clears throat> Selfish desires cause conflict with others. Secondly, selfish desires yield empty results. Look at verse 2. Ye lust and have not. The passions and the drives that we have actually don't produce what we're even looking for. We want absence of conflict. We want peace in our relationships. But when self is on the throne, that passion and that desire actually only leads to the very thing that we're trying to avoid. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. How do you respond when you don't get what you want? When we don't get what we want, when we want it, or how we want it, it tempts us to take matters into our own hands, right? We start to think that we're going to do it on our own. Sin tempts us to try and fill emptiness with things that actually, according to the text here, only lead to more emptiness. They cause more gaps in the, in the, um, in the problem. Selfish desires say, the one who dies with the most toys wins. The obvious truth is that the one with the most toys dies still dies. James' point is this. 
There is nothing in the world that can fulfill our desires. Our deepest longings cannot be fulfilled with things in the world. Even something as great or as good as good relationships, even as something as good as, as, um, as absence of conflict, does not fulfill our deepest longings until we find contentment in the relationship that comes with the Creator, Jesus Christ. We will never find contentment in our relationships with His creation. <clears throat> Third thing, selfish desires produce worthless prayer, prayers. Someone explained the problem like this. It's been said that we turn God into a divine waiter. And God is there to give us what we need and how we need it. He is there to deliver our daydream to us. We touch base with him on Sunday. We put our order in via our prayers. We might even give up a decent tip by placing money in the offering. But God is essentially there, we feel, to give us what we need and how we need it. In other words, self is on the throne in my life. And so my needs and my pleasures and my desires are first and foremost. However, the purpose of prayer as it's taught in the, in the Bible is never to allow, align God to us. Rather, it's the opposite. Prayer is taught in Scripture as us aligning ourselves with God, not the other way around. The point of prayer is not to change God's mind. The point of prayer is to change our desires and to change our position in relation to God. The goal of prayer is not for our will to be done, but for God's will to be done. And the text here mentions two problems with our prayers. First of all, we ask. First of all, we don't ask. And secondly, we ask for the wrong reason. In 1 John 5 verse 14, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Here's the deal. If we pray according to what pleases us, Our prayers are driven by selfish desires in order to get more for ourselves. And we really have no reason to expect God to give us what we ask. Or conversely, if we pray according to what pleases and glorifies God, we're praying according to his will. And that change in our mind and our concept of ourselves brings and produces change in our lives. Here's something to consider, a bit of a test about praying selfish prayers. If all of your prayers were answered today, other than you, who would benefit? If all of the praise that, prayers that you prayed and that are high on your list of prayers, if all of those prayers were answered, other than you, who would be impacted? 
Who would be glorified? Who would be saved? And the text tells us that our prayers are often so that we can feel good. God, give me that extra pillow. My back hurts. God, somebody said something that doesn't feel good. I should not be spoken to like that. We pray, James says, so that we can consume it upon our lusts. Our prayers are actually driven by the passions and the desires, the motivation, the hedonism that we find ourselves in. So we can consume it upon ourselves. God's goal is not to give human beings what their own impulses demand. His goal is that human beings will learn to love what he loves. It is not that God does not want people to have pleasure, but he wants to train them to take pleasure in what brings him pleasure. So that we are aligned with God, I said earlier, that we take pleasure in what he knows is truly good for us and for our lives and for the people around us. The purpose of prayer is not that I get my will done on earth, but to get thy will, the Lord's Prayer says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Selfish desires cause spiritual adultery, according to verse 4. A rather shocking verse. Ye adulteresses and adulterers, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God, hostility. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Again, strong and pointed words. Now in a marriage covenant, there is probably nothing that violates a marriage covenant like adultery. And James says that Christians, remember he's writing to Christians, he's writing to the church. Professing Christians who are motivated by and live by their own selfish desires is a form of adultery. It's cheating on God. The church is the bride of Christ. We are wed to Jesus according to the teaching of scripture. And that picture will be even more fulfilled And that day when we're in his presence forever in heaven. The church is the bride of Christ. And for us to find our satisfaction and our pleasures and the fulfillment of all of those things in our own desires is a form of adultery. James says that the church is in bed with the world of self-glory, self-fulfillment, (laughs) self-indulgence. self-satisfaction, and other forms of self-service, and that is hostility toward God. Friendship with the world is not suggesting that Christians should not ever be friends with unbelievers. That's not what he's talking about at all. Friendship with the world refers to the man-centered, Satan-directed system of this present age. And we live in that kind of world. Secular world structures that are hostile toward God. He's talking about the selfish and godless morality of, of the world that is in open rebellion 
toward God. He's talking about people who are controlled by their passions. People who unquestionably have themselves in the center of their lives, on the throne of their lives. Instead of having God in their lives, they are on the throne of their lives. Look at the words of 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. It's as if James is saying, church, when we seek to find our ultimate joy, and our ultimate worth, and our ultimate contentment, in the things of the world, we are just like a cheating spouse who selfishly seeks satisfaction in an adulterous relationship and commits spiritual adultery. The emptiness of that. So where does this leave us? Where is our hope? James is just as pointed about the cure, and I'm happy to talk about that. God's grace. And verse 5, why God addresses the problem. Do you think, he says, it's without reason. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. He turns this thing around and he uses the word lust in a completely different shape or form that he's been using, the opposite, the equal and opposite. God has placed his spirit within us, and God's spirit is jealous. God's spirit has desires that he wants us to fulfill. He wants us to to produce in our lives. God's spirit is placed in our lives when we receive Christ, when we receive the new birth, and that spirit is designed to cause us to bring glory to God and to reflect his image to people around us. And the spirit feels jealousy when that is not taking place. Do you think it's without reason that the scripture says that the spirit he made to dwell on us envies jealously or intensely is another passage Another translation. Another translation yet. God's jealousy longs for the spirit he made to live in us. God wants us to long for him. And God's concern and longing is that those who have wandered would return to that state of fellowship with with him. The state of unfaithfulness that some of James's readers and perhaps some of us right now find ourselves in is... It's time for a change, James is saying. It's time for a change. It's time for an honest look at what's going on. The second thing is how God addresses the problem. The cure for hedonism is God's grace. He gives 
more grace. He gives greater grace when we humble ourselves. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God responds to humility with grace. He gives us strength that we need. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, he said unto me, this is Paul talking about his prayer and his asking for deliverance from the thorn that he had. My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, Paul says, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon us. This verse should be so instructive to us, especially when we find ourselves in conflict. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Romans 5.20, moreover, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And those are three of more verses that talk about God's abundant grace and his desire to have that poured out in our lives. I need God's grace. I need God's grace when the pressure is on. I need grace when the problems seem overwhelming. I need grace when the finances are low. I need grace when health is in crisis. I need grace when the family dreams are shattered. I need grace when the spiritual flame is flickering. And I need grace when I find myself in conflict with another brother. God addresses all of the problems through grace. His amazing grace. Greater grace. Grace upon grace. For the believer who is willing to take himself or herself off the throne of their life and allow God to be on that throne unquestionably. Reminds me of some familiar songs, songs that we sing. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face. Will you this moment his grace receive? Let's sing it together. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Or another song, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more grace when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplied his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, Our Father's full giving 
has only begun. Let's sing it together. His love hath no limits, His grace hath no measure, His power hath no boundary known unto men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. Someone has described God's grace as God's Niagara Falls. And those of us who were there recently understand that in a different way, perhaps. The amount and the sheer volume of water that goes over Niagara Falls. And that's sort of an inadequate and imperfect picture of God's grace. There's always more. There's always more. And when I think of that, it sort of undoes some of the arguments that I place and play in my minds, especially when it relates, comes to conflict. What is our response to all of this? I have several things. First of all, we need to submit to God completely. In verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. It's been said that 99.9% of our problems or our conflicts exist because we don't fully submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I don't like those words, but I think they're true. Have you totally submitted to God in the conflict that you're in? Submission is a military term. It means to deliberately place oneself lower in rank. And you know what the problem is in almost all of the conflicts we are in? We see ourselves as having the the answers. We see ourselves as being correct. We see ourselves as the ones who deserve or need to be heard. Is there a relationship? Is there a decision? Is there a struggle? Is there a besetting sin that you have not given to God? Submit to God completely. Secondly, resist the devil forcefully. The end of verse 7 says, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This seems like such a no-brainer. It seems like such a no-brainer. But how are you resisting the devil? How are you going about resisting him? Too often we're passive in our resistance towards Satan. And as a result, we're powerless to his assaults in our lives. We're trying to fight him based on our own strength and wisdom instead of submitting to God. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you're passive in submitting to God you're going to lose the fight to Satan. Arm yourself with the armor of God, according to Ephesians chapter 6. The promise here is that when we see God approaching us and we turn to God, Satan is running. So we see God's face and Satan's backside. Resist the devil forcefully. Come to God expectantly. In verse 8. Draw nigh to God. 
and he will draw an eye to you. Do not draw near to God presumptuously, but confidently, knowing that he is there. And the promise is that he's going to draw, draw near to us. I love that promise. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We have instruction, promise, instruction, promise. That's how it works. If God seems far away, who moved? Who moved? Pursue purity sincerely. And verse 8, cleanse your hands. That has to do with outward things, actions, you sinners. Purify your hearts. That has to do with attitudes. We need to pure ourselves sincerely, completely, inwardly and outwardly. And I can't help but notice the strong words that James uses here. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Man, he's laying it on. Treat sin seriously. If you're living in friendship with the world, we tend not to think of sin as really all that much of a big deal. But James doesn't trivialize sin here at all. Notice what he says. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. React to sin with sorrow. Matthew 5 verse 4 says that blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. When's the last time you cried about the sin in your life. When's the last time that you were moved to tears because you have actions and attitudes that were pushing you away and others away from God and his blessings? Follow the Lord humbly. Notice it says, in the sight of God, in verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourselves. Don't wait for God to humble you. When we humble ourselves before God, we don't have to lift ourselves up. We don't even have to have any scheme to do that. God does that. When we humble ourselves before God, He lifts us up. He pleads our cause. You know, in relational conflict, well, I often think of the uh, term where Jesus was talking to the disciples and he said, I will not leave you comfortless. And that word comfortless in John 17 means orphans. What Jesus is telling the disciples is that he is like a father that will fight for them. And good fathers will take care of their children that are not able to take care of things themselves. A good father takes care of the barking dog. A good father comforts the things that are hindrances to children. And God is in that same way. He will not leave us orphans. 
He will not leave us without somebody to take care of us. He lifts us up. We don't have to do that on our own. The seventh thing that he talks about here is that we need to refuse to slander others. When we are in conflict, when we are in relational conflict, the instruction here is that we are not to speak evil one of another. And he brings us back to that word, brethren. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He appeals to our connection to each other, our mutual connection to God. In the Greek text, the word uh, devil here, I see my notes are just a little incomplete. It carries the idea of, of being an accuser or speaking evil as the idea of, uh, of, of being an accuser. And it's actually the same word that is translated devil in numerous other passages. Slanderer. The chief work of the devil is to slander. We speak evil of others when we complain about them. We carry stories that are designed to make them look bad. We judge their motives. We impugn motives into their character. We condemn them. The command here is given in the present tense, which again tells me something about the situation that James was writing to, the habitual practice that was among them in attacking each other as if they had no relationship to each other, no relationship to God. These brethren, he says, are people that we have connection to who also have connection to God. And James goes on and talks about the lawgiver, one lawgiver, one judge. Paul recognized this fact, and he acknowledges it in, in his own writings. James writes in the same way here. The ultimate judgment rests with God. While we have feelings, while we have thoughts about a certain situation, the ultimate judgment rests with God. Let's allow God to take care of it. <clears throat> At the beginning, or close to the beginning, I said that life, in most ways, is simply a series of conflicts. And how we handle those conflicts determines the quality of our relationships, and especially our relationship with Jesus Christ. And James makes that point as clear as could be. How we handle the conflicts in our lives determines the quality of our relationships, all of our relationships, and especially our relationship with God. And as I close now, I remind you and myself that we are by design, by God's design, we are worshipers. God created us to be worshipers. And perhaps the biggest struggle in all of our lives is to look to created things instead of looking to God for satisfaction. Too often in relational conflict, we're doing that exact same thing. We crave something or someone to fill the void in our lives. And instead of turning to God to fill that void, we look to things and situations and, and things other than God. We see people as an object for getting what I want. Or we see them as an obstacle in the way of getting what I want. I see people in those, in, the, in those kinds of situations, I see people as someone to control instead of someone to love. 
Paul Tripp makes the statement. He says, the desire for even a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes the ruling thing. The desire for even a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes the ruling thing. What, what is it that you really want from God? What is it that you really crave from Him? Our problem of conflicts, James tells us, is not usually rooted in the fact that we don't love each other enough. Our problem is rooted in the fact that we don't love God enough. And my prayer is that we would come to God and turn our attention away from anything else. I appreciate the words of John chapter 6, verse 37, where it says, Him that cometh to me will I in no wise cast out. Him that cometh to me will I in no wise cast out. Gives me courage. I want to close before we come to prayer by reading verses 7 to 11. This has been called the Ten Commandments of the book of James. The Ten Commandments of the book of James. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw an eye to God, and he will draw an eye to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil, one of another, brethren. If you're able to kneel, I invite you to do so as we pray. Lord, we come to you. We ask for your grace and guidance to fill our lives and to cover us in our time of need. And I pray, Lord, on behalf of each of us here this morning, that you would show us how we can place you and in what way we can retract our desire to control situations and people and to allow you instead to, to be our comforter, our peace, and our guide. Forgive us for the times where we've taken control into our own minds and hearts in ways and times where you have not intended. Again, we pray for your guidance and your, your grace to fill us. We pray through Christ. Amen.